0: It's ad break time. I'm proud to announce that the Beyond Solitaire podcast is sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. And as usual, they are up to some amazing things. Their next game, Hydrologic Cycle, is scheduled to come to Kickstarter on March 26th. CLGS also continues to offer classes in partnership with Gen Con. The next course, Classroom Game Design, Yes We Can, will be taught by one of my absolute favorite teacher gamers, Dr. Christiane Hintz. It begins on March 4th, and you should definitely sign up for it. I'll also include a final plug for myself. If you like the show and want to support it, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. Thanks to listeners like you, I've been able to keep upgrading my equipment, subscribing to StreamYard, and more. But for now, let's get on with the show. Hey, gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I am on the pod this week with a very special guest. This is Herman Lutman, a very famous game designer, especially if you're in the solo gaming space. So uh, how you doing today, Herman?
1: All right, Liz, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be awesome. So for people who don't know who you are, um, I'm not sure how that happens if you're listening to this podcast, but it could. Uh, what are some of the games that you have designed that you'd like to just highlight? So if people want to match a game with a face, it could be you.
1: Oh boy. Well, I'm probably, for general gamers, I'm probably most well-known for Dawn of the Zeds. That that started, wait, boy, boy, 2012, I think, right? About 12, 10, 12 years. And that's been through three editions now. So that's been around for a long time. And that's most of the most of the references I get are, are associated with Dawn of the Zeds. Recently, it's obviously the Plum Island Horror, which is, is Dawn of the Zeds adjacent, I guess. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny. I, I, I heard uh, uh, Art Wolf the other day and, and Dan talking about it. And they said, well, if they're talking about experts in certain fields of, uh, you know, periods of warfare. And they say, well, we can agree that Herman's the zombie expert of our group. So, <laughs> so I guess that's what I'm well known for, is being the zombie expert. Um, gamers will probably know me for the blind sword system, I think, primarily. Um, so yeah, most, mostly that. Um, there's others.
0: <laughs> is it, yeah, you have, had a very prolific design career. So for those of you who are curious, just a BGG lookup you will see many games to sample uh, from Herman. Mm-hmm. But I actually brought you on today because I thought it'd be kind of fun. I feel like you and I share something, which is that we both enjoy like a broad range of solo games. So we're generalists mm-hmm. and we're historical and war gamers. Right. Um, so is that something that was always the case for you? Like, did you kind of start in one end and then move to the other? You know, Where did your gaming hobby start and how has it kind of spread?
1: I've always been interested in military history. I was reading military history books when I was 13 or something like that. Um, so that's always been in my DNA. Uh, it's It's been there forever. Uh, oddly enough, my first real war game experience as a routine war—it was actually miniature ships, <laughs> Al-Navco 1200 scale uh, ships. And I had, I mean, I... I used to bust tables in my father's restaurant and, and all my money went towards ordering the next destroyer or whatever. And uh, so it started there. Then I gradually found a group and got into board gaming. Then I, then in the nineties, uh, I diverted back to miniatures again. I started painting up, I actually have some of them left over there. There were a few that I have left over and spared. Um, I painted Napoleonic six millimeter, seven years war, some Warhammer 40 K Epic scale, Warhammer 40 K, that's the only way to go with Warhammer 40k. And uh, so I did that for a while. And then I gradually went back into board games again. It's, you know, a lot of it's like, who, who's, who's, what, what are people playing around you at the time? Right. So we'd go to this one store called Waterloo and there was a miniatures club and there's was a board game club. And, you know, you just, you just go with what the crowd's doing and you, you adapt to it, you know, and, and, and that's, uh, so I ended up mostly in war game. I can't, I can't see to paint and I don't have time to paint anymore. So I've kind of given up on the miniatures, though I'm hoping that Epic Scale <laughs> comes back one day and I can deploy my orcs again. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's... it's Now, oddly enough, just to give you a little transition, my first game design was with Victory Point Games was called Gettysburg the Wheatfield. That was actually based on a set of miniatures rules I designed called Tattered Flags. And Alan Emmerich and I... Talked about System Seven Napoleonic's. I don't know if you remember what the, what those were. Those were actually cardboard counters that were used as miniatures. So we we were talking about well, how can we convert that into a board game? And that's how my whole design career started. Actually, with a miniature set of rules that was converted.
0: So basically, your design career started when you fused two different sides of the hobby that were of interest. Yes. Yeah.
1: I guess you could say that. Sure.
0: I feel like that's really appropriate given that i would say that dawn of the zeds is probably i would say it's probably the best days of siege game
1: uh thank you um <laughs> aaron leveloff deserves a lot of credit for creating that that cool little system right as simple as it is it's still ingenious some of the most ingenious ideas are simple ideas right and i mean that thing's uh what is it there's like 20 30 games now using that system and Uh, Thank you for saying that. Some other people have said that too. It did take that whole model and just kind of (laughs) messed with it, I guess you could say. Um, (laughs) But thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, but it's fun to see like a fusion of you know. I don't know what to call zombies. They're. I mean, we talk about sci-fi fantasy. I don't know where zombies fit. I guess.
1: Horror, I guess. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Horror, but you're right. Horror could be sci-fi. Horror could be fantasy. It, it's hard to say, I guess it's its own little niche genre, I suppose, um, the unstoppable evil enemy that doesn't have any logic or soul <laughs> to coming at you. <laughs> so the, which by the way, makes it nice and it makes it nice and easy to, to develop an AI for it. Right?
0: So this also makes me wonder, so you talk about playing what the people around you are playing. If that is true, how did you end up being such a prolific solo gamer and designer?
1: That again is VPG's fault because <laughs> their 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 shtick was develop was designing solo games. That was their kind of little part of the market, you know. And and uh, I mean, obviously they did others too, but they they seem to have this this gear where they were where they were putting out solo games. I find it, and when I started designing, I found it a particular interesting challenge to do a solo game. They're not they're not easy to design. Good ones are not easy to design. And I promised myself when I got into the designing thing that A, I would not just pump out the same stuff constantly and and uh, B, I would challenge myself. So I try to, I do try to think outside the box because one of the ideas of designing is that you want to challenge yourself, right? You want to be creative. And I try to push that all the time. So even with Blind Swords, you know, people ask me, how come you only did three Blind Swords Civil War games? And I said, because I was kind of, I, I just didn't want to churn them out, right? And I've taken the Blind Sword system and done other things with it. I, I've, you know, twisted it and tweaked it so that it would be, for a most fearful sacrifice, it was a, on a larger scale. Uh, for Shattered Union series, it was smaller, more obscure battles and simpler to play. So, I, you know, I tried to change it up a little bit. And not just keep repeating the same thing.
0: Nice. So I'm going to, I'll turn us around to the history part later, but for now, the other thing I kind of want to ask is, you know, you, you made some really good comments in our sort of pre-chat, um, where you're talking about playing everything and kind of managing mm-hmm. to get it into your designs. Um, especially in a world where we like to fight about what a war game is.
1: Um, <laughs> uh, please um, don't make me do that. No, 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 no. I,
0: but I want to like. How do you? I want you to talk about your approach because I think it's interesting. Um, you know what kinds of things can go into war games without compromising what you see as their essential. Yeah. War so game-ness? right. So we're, we don't
1: again without getting into what is a war game. Well, let's say it's a, a simulation of a historical battle. Let's say or a campaign. Um, the mechanics that have been used to simulate that since the seventies or even sixties kind of were like, you know, hex encounter zone of control odds, based CRT variations of that, lots of modifiers, two hours per turn, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, I was, I was one of those guys too. I played all those games. Right. But as we get, as we get now a little bit more competitive in the market, in the gaming market, you can see that, you know, there are games out there that are using all sorts of different mechanisms and, and styles and and uh, approaches. Uh, I have them all lined up there back there. You know, those are none of those are a war game. <laughs> Defenders of the Realm and Street Masters and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, so, A, I like playing those games. I'm, I'm a gamer. I'm not necessarily just a war gamer. I am a gamer. There are some games I won't play not because, you know, I think they're bad games. It just might not be themes I'm particularly interested in, right? I don't like playing games about growing flowers or or farming, you know, and things like that.
0: Fine. Look, Herman, anything can be a war game if you try harder. <laughs> <It's true. laughs>
1: That's true. You could, yes. You could have plants fighting other plants. You're right. Man, I think somebody's probably done that already.
0: There's um, plants versus zombies, actually, if you're in the Exactly. That's right. There's aliens or <laughs>
1: plants versus zombies, yes. Um... So A, I like to I enjoy playing those other games. And B, I look for mechanical cues, right? So if I'm playing, for example, I'll just give you one example real quick. So I had a game, I just had a game come out called By Iron and Blood, which is about the Battle of Konigsgratz. And I'm like, okay, well, how am I going to do something different with this rather than the normal thing? And I've played a game called Conan, which had this river system of activation, which I found fascinating. And I adapted it to be used as the command system for iron and Blood. And it's very simply this this track and you have expenses to activate things. And when you activate something, it comes off the track, goes to the end, everything shovels down. And now that becomes, you know, the the stuff you didn't activate is cheaper. The thing you just activated is super expensive to activate again. That simple mechanism actually kind of mimics command command and control to a certain degree and then i added a little twist in there where you can put a headquarters chit in there and wherever you put the headquarters chit it could activate the unit under it or next to it so it has its own little you know kind of range of command ability that worked out great and i came from a conan game well also batman gotham city i think uses that system and uh i tried that with all sorts of games, plum island horror Though not a war game, but still, a, you know, a recent design is just chock full of stuff from, oh boy, Eldritch Horror and Clank and Defenders of the Realm and I mean, there's Aeon's End is just. But they all they all work. They can be adapted to mimic, in the case of a war game, command and control quite easily. And even combat, you know, you could futz around with using custom dice and things like you don't have to use a D6 on a CRT in in a most fearful sacrifice. I use column shifts because I don't like tracking long lists of modifiers, you know, plus three to my die, minus two to my die, plus two on Wednesdays, you know, minus three on Thursdays, you know, that kind of thing. I have people move the column around and then you roll the dice and whatever the dice are, that's what that's what you're going to get. And that works just fine. And it's a lot easier to use. So it's just little things like that, that I try to make war games a little more accessible, maybe a little bit more fun to play, maybe a little more entertaining so that we get more people involved in that.
0: Yeah, I think we definitely share that goal. So just out of curiosity, I'm just gonna ask, is Dawn of the Zeds a war game?
1: Um, <laughs> I would say Dawn of the Zeds is, cause it was, that was, when I designed that, I was still in a war gaming space in my head. Mm-hmm. So, I that was very wargamey at the beginning. As a matter of fact, the one thing I would change if I could redesign the game today is I would change the combat table. Now, and, and and I knew it was too wargamey because if you look at if you look at the cr if you look at that combat table, it doesn't say two to one odds or three to one odds. It says double and triple. So I even tried to get away from the odds ratio thing and just say, hey, is it larger than? Is it double? Is it triple? Um, But that, yeah, I I would say Zed's is, I would say Plum Island Horror is not.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So for you, it's kind of a mechanism-based thing almost, as opposed to theme-based.
1: Yes, because there is still combat in Plum Island Horror, but there are just so many other things going on uh, to win that game that combat is not the central thing.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, i have a I have a notably broader definition of wargaming, but I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's okay. I mean, we're talking about a broadening hobby, right? With more people coming in, um, I think that it really only becomes a big deal when it comes to like award season.
1: <laughs> but a that lot. is,
0: I said, I think we only really care about it when it's award season. <laughs> like, how you define? It. <laughs> but I've always wondered because you know um, one thing I did want to ask is so for me, because I come at things from such a historical perspective. Um, I, uh, for me, like historical and war games have a lot of bleed. Um, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd say that something like endurance from Holland Spiel is not a war game because it's not really about a conflict. It's just truly a historical game. Whereas, you know, once you move towards like a more conflicty thing, maybe like I have a broader set of definitions, but for me, I've always wondered, like when you have a sci-fi game, what's the difference between a sci-fi war game and just a sci-fi game? Cause to me, it's never made so, a big difference. Yeah, so
1: just sci-fi game would probably primarily deal with launching your rockets, getting your rockets into orbit, landing on a planet, what do you find scientifically blah blah blah, you know, building a dome cities things like that. So I mean, I guess now if you have alien if you have martians show up and start attacking you, then I guess it becomes a war game, doesn't it? So for example, um again now, just to prove your point, a game like Australia uh, by Martin Wallace. I don't know if you've played that Uh one. It's A-U-Z-T-R-A-L. Great game. But the first half of that game is all laying down tracks and farming and making connections. And then the second half of the game just becomes this sci-fi war game against Cthulhu. It's, it's It's a fascinating design, but I guess, you know, people don't refer to it as a war game. I've never heard people refer to it as a war game. It's just one of those oddball but things. But
0: I guarantee you people are going to say that Plum Island Horror is a war game because it came out from GMT.
1: Oh, I've already had that. <laughs> <laughs> I submitted the fact that it was Michael Kelly from One Stop Co-op Shop. And he said somebody else got it and they don't normally play war games from GMT. And I wrote him, I like, go, oh, Mike, this is not a war game, all right? This is... A- <laughs> this is a horror survival game
0: although i mean even avalon hill and it's like original incarnation published a lot of different kinds of stuff i mean like baseball and mm-hmm. you know sports games. outdoor survival yeah. um
1: yeah it was, yeah there's a whole bunch of stuff and and that goes you know that proves the point right i mean you, you know you and gmt's now i mean a lot of companies have done it but gmt particularly is obviously has and it's not just with plumb island horror they've had they've got uh what is it uh Space Corp and um, uh, Chad Jensen's games, right? Uh, Dominant Species and all that. So they've been doing it for a while. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, for example, Mr. President, right? Yeah. I mean, I know that, you know, I've even talked to Ryan about this. Well, Mr. President, what? I mean, is that going to be classified as a war game?
0: I mean, I haven't decided what that is yet. That game is like.
1: <laughs> I'm sure gene appreciates. No, no, no! That. I don't mean it's about. It's a
0: brilliant like design. No, I know what you it's mean. Just, it's you how mean. do you yeah. categorize? Like, there's nothing like it. There's truly no game in existence that is like Mr. President. It's like completely yeah. outside of like what genre is that? I don't think it's. Right. You know what I mean? It's um. And. and you know.
1: Yeah, I mean the genre really is unimportant except if you're talking about. right? Best of lists and awards and things like that. Then, then genre and categories become important. But for us, I don't really care what you categorize a game, right? I mean, it's if it's fun to play, I'll play it. You know, it's uh, whatever, whatever category it's in.
0: So, kind of speaking of that, then, so you got kind of a split design catalog between things that are like sci-fi, fantasy, horror romps, and historical (laughs) games. Do you see those design processes as fundamentally different? And do you approach them differently, even though you're bringing mechanisms across borders?
1: Uh, Yes, and thank you for pointing that out, because that's, for me personally, one of the proudest things I've done is try to not be pigeonholed into a certain type. So I can do a game like Most Fearful Sacrifice, which is a gigantic, heavy Gettysburg game, and I can do Invaders from Dimension X, which is a small sci-fi, silly, folio game right um i i like that diversity of of doing different types of games like that for me as a designer i'm not saying that's for everybody i'm just saying for me personally that and it is as you probably you know as you know doing historical war games is a lot of work even small historical war games are a lot of work the Koeniggratz game is a relatively small game compared to, you know, let's say an average GMT game. That took me tons of research. I mean, you know, you're reading multiple books, even buying other games about the same battle to see if you can get gather any angles and all that kind of thing. It's just work and work and work. It's research, research, research. Make sure you are presenting the history as accurately as you can. I'm not saying it's, it's always accurate, you know, and, and, You try your best, right? I mean, I can tell you from personal experience when I did the most fearful sacrifice, I got books all over here on Gettysburg and I got three different pieces of information about when a unit showed up, let's say. So you have to sit there and weigh all that and then don't make the wrong decision because somebody's going to write you online and say, no, 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 this battery showed up at 10 a.m., not at 930, you know, that kind of thing. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pressure, especially for a famous battle like Gettysburg, Koenigsegg's not so famous. You might be able to fudge a little bit if you if you if you have to. But um, so the amount of the amount of research work that goes into a game like that, and to recreate that period. So the other challenge for a war game is you want to make sure that you're not just regurgitating your World War II mechanics for a Civil War game or an Napoleonic game. When somebody plays a Napoleonic game. They want it to feel Napoleonic, and they it has to have X, Y, and Z in it to be a Napoleonic game. You got to know the period and and do your best to replicate the fighting style, the uniforms, whatever the look of that period. When I'm do, doing, well, you want to take the extreme. If if I did when I did Invaders from Dimension X, that was literally a challenge by um, Jeff McAleer of the Gaming Gang. We were sitting around at a, a consum a consum World Expo years and years ago, and he just said to me, "You like chaos? Why don't you design a game that's totally chaos?" And I said, "I accept that challenge." And that's what the chaos do. It's just totally random. They just do stuff, and you have to deal with it. That's one extreme. Um, you know, games like Plum Island Horror are, you know, fictional. Though we did a lot of research and interviews. <laughs> To Interfuse. get that game accurate exactly as possible. <laughs> um, and then your, your main concentration is to design the most entertaining product you can, right? Come up with the best mechanics to let people have a great time and to challenge them game-wise. And you justify everything later on, right? Especially for a sci-fi game, right? Where you're just... Now it still has to be internally logical, right? So if you're doing a sci-fi world, well, I'll, t- I'll take—I'll tell you what—I'll t- do a fantasy world. We just um, with Ryan Heilman and Fred Manzo, we just designed the Struggle for Zorn, the Red Blight for Blue Panther Games. It's a big fantasy war game. It is a fantasy war game, but that world that we created, though it's not as deep as you know, if you're going to read a novel, we created a world that is internally logical and appears in the game, right? So units act like you would think they would act in that fantasy world. So there is still an internal logic, but you could, you still have a lot more freedom. Like if you decide that the bad guy champion should do this because it's a really cool mechanic in the game and, boy, that'll be a lot of fun, then you come up with a reason why you can do it later on, right? <laughs> so designing non-historical games, it's, it's basically entertainment first, build world later. Come up with cool stuff that people will laugh at or have fun with. Historical gaming—it's kind of the opposite. It's like get get all your you know your ducks in a row, get everything accurate, make sure you're telling the proper story and an accurate story. Um, they're both a lot of work uh, in different ways, but rewarding nonetheless in, in both cases.
0: So. One thing I think is really fun when you're talking about history is that, I mean, for me, I, you know, I say this often, um, when you're doing history, you're telling what you think happened, but then you're also by choosing the things that you prioritize and the things that you show interest in and the perspectives you pick, Mm -hmm. you're also telling a bit of a story about yourself. And so how do you, I mean, what kind of responsibility do you feel to represent more historically than just the time? the uniform the flag uh, are you also trying to sort of capture the essence of the period or on the specifics of combat as opposed to like sort of like a larger situation that the combat's happening in
1: i personally just concentrate on the com- on that battle or on that campaign that i'm doing right it's not you know a treatise on on the politics of napoleon the 3rd or whatever um, I I worry about telling the story of that battle and the ingredients that went into making that battle what it is, is, is my first priority. I do like presenting what ifs, so I do like doing that, all right? So if I'm giving you the Battle of Gettysburg or Konigsgratz or whatever... What else could have happened? What could have changed the tide of the battle one way or another? And I give those as options. And they're reasonable options. They're not stupid options. They're not like, you know, aliens land or anything like that. So that I feel is 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 a bit of a responsibility. Is maybe maybe go outside the battle a little bit and say, well, what happens if this t- hadn't happened? What if Second Army doesn't show up for the Prussians? And can the Austrians then win at the at the Battle of Konigsgrad? So I don't go, you know, and in a game like, for example, if it's an obscure period or obscure to Americans, let's say, um, at any cost was about the campaign around Metz in 1870 during Franco-Prussian war. And a game had never been designed on the whole campaign around that city, even though there were two humongous battles fought there. And I just took it upon myself and said, well, I'm learning about this period. I'm going to do a whole playbook with a whole historical detailed thing on I mean, this is what this period represents just in, in that sense it was to teach people look this is this is a something that you probably don't play a lot of games about and this is what they looked like and there's the uniforms they wore these are the tactics they used, these are the commanders and their personalities and this is how it went and this is why it's important <laughs> uh you know arguments are made you know that World War One doesn't happen without the Franco-Prussian War, and World War II doesn't happen without World War I. So you can, you know, you can trace this all back.
0: So that kind of leads me to ask then. So, um, you know, you're very focused on battles and on interesting battles. Then why do you choose the specific historical periods that you do? Like how you, I feel like you've got kind of a few threads. Uh, I associate your work with a lot of Civil War gaming. You've done some mm-hmm. Napoleonics. I know you've got a Franco-Prussian War game out. Mm-hmm. What draws you to the periods that you choose to represent and like what is, what causes you to decide this is going to be a game? I want to make a game about this.
1: That's a good question. I I honestly don't know. It's like, I don't do a lot of World War II games. I've done two, I think. Miracle of Dunkirk and Crowbar. I don't think I've done any others. And it's I just don't find World War II on a strategic level that interesting, right? And it's been game to death. I guess maybe now you could say Gettysburg's been game to death too, and I have to agree with you on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. I guess it's it just it, it's something it's I can't explain. It. It's just something you're drawn to interest. Like I like I'm very interested in World War One, and I've done a number of games on World War One, and I've got other games on World War One planned. And I find strategically that whole situation of World War One to be far more interesting than World War II. More fronts, more you know, more countries involved. Um, the whole beginning of the war is just bizarre. You know how this whole thing even got rolling. Um, the Franco-Prussian War I kind of stumbled into because I played a game called Blood and Iron by Rob Markham, a Three W game back in the day just on a fluke. And I said, wow, this is really interesting. I didn't know anything about this. Look at these guys. They're dressed up like Napoleonic guys, but they're using machine guns and, and modern, you know, so, somewhat modern weaponry. And I thought that was fascinating. So the Civil War connection, that's just, that, so that comes, goes back to my miniatures days. That's what we were playing in miniatures. So I got very involved. When you're doing miniatures, you get down to what color cuffs people are wearing because you have to paint them that way. So you're doing a lot of research into the generals and the, and the, the tactics and all that. And it probably stemmed from that. Plus, let, let's be honest, Civil War games sell well. You know, you know, you don't want to produce games that nobody's going to buy, um, especially when you start off. Um, Napoleonics is obviously very popular too. And, and I plan to do a Blind Swords Napoleonics this year. Hopefully it's been on the drawing board for, I don't know how long I have to get to it. Um, so why, you know, in ancients, I don't find that interesting. I can't tell you why. Cancel. <laughs> Cancel. No, sorry, sorry, sorry. I, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's because, because when I used to play the games, they all looked the same. They were on a big open plane with two guys, two lines of troops facing each <laughs> other. No, I don't so know. so much
0: better than that, but yes. I, it- <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I know it. Is. I know it. I'm coming. I'm coming around. I play some of the uh, the, the uh, PC games and the ancient PC games, and they're fun. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. I don't think there's any any one particular thing. I mean, like we talked before, I'm first generation German American. I don't automatically tend to, you know, like war, wars that the Germans are in or anything like that, or the Americans. It's just, uh, it's just. I, I guess it's unexplained. It's something in your you know
0: well i mean you mentioned that you're reading history books at 13 like what were the first things that you were reading at that age well
1: specific books no I like mean, what, what stuff every... were you
0: reading about like i remember i saw a book about the pyramids as a kid and i was like enthralled it's not a, like you know my favorite childhood book was from the mixed-up files of mrs basely Frankweiler. it is zero surprise. It's about Kansas Runaway run away and live in the metropolitan museum of art like
1: so this is so weird that you asked, i haven't thought about this book until you just asked me this question so there was a book called Foxes in the Desert by Paul Carroll, I believe. And it was about Rommel and the North African campaign. And I must have read that book three times. I don't know why. There was just something enthralling about it. I, I can't explain it. And then he did a book called Hitler Moves East, I think, which was about the Russian campaign. So it was, it was a paperback book. I guess it was compact you know it wasn't hard reading it wasn't really long so it kind of drew me in and and then then it just went you know i I grabbed anything i could i did a lot of reading when i was a kid i was thankfully my mother encouraged me to read a lot and i did i read lord of the rings once one summer when i when i was 15 i think you know is is just something i like to do
0: yeah i'm always curious i i always wonder like how formative these things are because it sounds like you did a lot of world war ii reading but then you didn't grow up and design a lot of World War II. Games. Yeah, well, I
1: mean my first my first war game ever was Stalingrad. I remember pick I remember the day I picked it up. And it just looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I you know, and I don't think I just don't think I can contribute anything to World War II gaming. I mean, other than like I said, you know, I did the Dunkirk game. Well, I did two. I did a spoiled victory and then I upgraded it and I'm doing Miracle of Dunkirk, which will come out this year for by Legion War Games. That one was actually a suggestion by a friend of mine, Paul Fish, who said, Hey, that would make kind of a cool solo game. And I go, Yeah, you know what? That would make a cool solo game. And and honestly, that's not I don't I know it's a war game, but I actually call it an evacuation game. It's not so much a war game as it is an evacuation, because your job is to evacuate the British Expeditionary Force from the beaches. Your job is not to beat the Germans. You're not going to beat the Germans. It's handling the perimeter long enough and efficiently moving the ships around to pick the guys up off the beaches and bring them back to England. That's the game right there. So that, that that's interesting. And crowbar was uh, that was a suggestion from a long time ago uh, after in magnificent style was to do that for the Rangers at point du Hoc Cause you need, you need a very specific situation to use that push your luck uh, wall of combat <laughs> type of game. Uh, and you know, to Hawk was definitely that. But I mean, those were the those were the two World War II ones that I just attracted me because they were so unusual, I guess.
0: That's really interesting. So speaking of Civil War, so you said you think you got into it through miniatures? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I so I've never really done any miniature stuff, so I'm always curious. My grandfather has a lot of painted miniatures, though. So like I can see it happening. Mm-hmm. But I guess I wanted to ask. So you do a lot of Civil War games, and I think that probably over the course of your lifetime. And really over the course of mine like a lot of attitudes about the civil war have changed so i i mean mm-hmm. you're a new yorker who moved from germany and now you live in, in tennessee so like i feel like you've adopted well, I, was
1: born in, I was born in new yeah. york my parents came over from germany yes. got
0: you so like you have adopted the south i guess as your home um <laughs> but um okay yeah, yeah i mean i would you know knoxville you said you never you you're happy to never go back i am uh you know i'm born in Texas, but I have a lot of family from the Carolinas. My grandfather did a big genealogy project and like discovered a bunch of Confederate soldiers in our family. And I feel like I have a much more fraught relationship with the civil war, like because of that, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, as a designer, do you feel like that's something that you need to take into consideration? And do you think that's something that has to change more with time? Like, whereas attitudes uh, were different earlier in your career?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think you can exclude gaming the civil war.
0: No, certainly now, More like a, how do you um, treat it? Like, I think that, um, you know, we're kind of in the midst of a lot of... Well, conflict.
1: that goes back to what you said before. I don't talk about the greater the greater scope. I'm, I'm concentrating on this one engagement. Uh, like I said, you know, In Magnificent Style was about Pickett's Charge, and you take the role of the Confederates attacking because, for very simple gaming reasons, you don't want to play the Union because it's boring as hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, th- that... That or any any of the Civil War games, you know, you, it's 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 hard to say to make a judgment on anybody that, well, you can't play the Confederates and you can't win as the Confederates because now we have a different look at that war now. Um, I it is what it is. And, you know, for me personally, you know, if, if it's uncomfortable for somebody to play a civil war, then don't play a civil war game. I don't, I don't, you know, I I don't take a position on. You know who should win or lose a battle if it's a historical battle, whoever won or lost. Um, Confederate's lost Gettysburg. I've done done that game. You know, I've done I've done plenty of games where either side has won or you know.
0: Yeah, it's just sort of interesting in Magnificent Style in particular. Like you know, I've reviewed it, and so I mean, I'm not gonna, I won't shy away. I thought it was a really, really good game. Um, I felt uncomfortable with, like, come on, boys. Rebel Yale, just because it kind of like had echoes of my own childhood of things like I didn't totally feel comfortable with about the culture that I was in. Do you think that it's possible to make a game about something like Pickett's Charge and not kind of bring in those narratives? Are they necessary? Like, do you have to embody that role that hard to make it through that well, game? You know what it, I mean? Like, I, I always wonder about these things from your perspective. <laughs>
1: From my perspective, I'm designing a game about Pickett's Charge. I'm making not a, I'm not making a moral judgment about Pickett's Charge. And honestly, if that makes you feel uncomfortable to play the Confederate, it says on the box you're going to play as the Confederates oh, yeah. play, and Pickett's Charge. Then just don't play it. Um, I'm not sitting there telling everybody, "Wow, this is really great." If you win, it, you are role playing them. Yes, I you know obviously you are, but you're role playing any Civil War game you play as the Confederates. You're role-playing the Confederates. You're trying to win as the Confederates. And I find it interesting. So I, I know that you, you're coming from that angle because you have a history, and I understand that. By the same token, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that people can play Soviet communists without a problem. They can play... Vi- Vikings are played by every gaming group, every level of gaming, mainstream gaming, Euro gaming, war gaming. The Vikings raped, pillaged, and enslaved people. That was their shtick. And nobody has trouble playing the Vikings. So, I don't know. <laughs> uh,
0: actually, you know, I, I I come from a position. So, do you think that there's anything, any game thing that should be off limits? That's actually, I would like to start there. The yeah,
1: I think genocide. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean things like that. Yes. I, I will say there are topics that I wouldn't touch. Um, you yeah. Know, I, I, yeah. So,
0: I think that, you know, the other thing that's kind of interesting, right, is that, I mean... I actually like to play things that make me uncomfortable. I think it's important to intellectually engage. Like for me, it's part of the process, uh-huh. but for me, it's not so much that I think that any specific theme is forbidden. I'm always just really interested in the perspectives that people choose to take and like the way they choose to uh-huh. construct that theme, if that makes sense. Um,
1: it makes sense. I, and I, I and I I totally understand where you're coming from and that's that's fine t- for me. <sighs> games are games. And, and I know that I'm not supposed to say that, but <laughs> games are games. And I, I don't really want to make them much more than an entertainment method of entertaining one another, or in some cases, yes, educating one another about a particular historical period. But I I, I personally don't design games to send messages or anything like that. Uh, my main goal is to be for people to have fun with it, even... Even my historical games—you're supposed to have fun with them—and that's that's my goal. Other people can design games for other goals. It's fine.
0: I, yeah. So when you uh, so you talk about historical, like need to be on theme, uh, do you ever find that that conflicts with your desire for a game to be entertaining?
1: Well, yes. I primarily, I want them to be fun. I want them to be entertaining or interesting, at least. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, for me to do a game like Crowbar in Magnificent Style, the only way you could make that interesting as a game is to create a system, you know, a solo system that challenges you. In this case, I picked Push Your Luck, you know, against a basically a, a wall of fire. <laughs> and that's what it is. So, I only did, I did, so in Magnificent Style it was originally going to be a trench game, trench warfare game. But for marketing purposes and all, we decided to pick something that would sell, right? I mean, you know, a lot of people don't want your first game to be about uh, or a third game about, you know, Trench Warfare. And for me, that was a particular challenge. The, The reason I designed that system was like, well, how do I make Trench Warfare entertaining? I could make a very boring game about Trench Warfare and nobody would buy it, right? So my goal as a designer was, well, how do I make this interesting as a game? And that's the system I came up with. And I, you know, people seem to like it. Um, and there'll be more coming with with that, with those mechanics.
0: Do you, um, what are some of the biggest, like, changes to history that you feel you've had to make to sacrifice, as it were, uh, a most fearful sacrifice uh, on the altar of entertainment? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't think I had to do that. Um, you know, there's ways to create mechanics that are fun and still, you know, preserve the the simulation um i mean in the sense of in magnificent style let's say the fact that the the union doesn't it is not an operating side right right? the units don't each individually fire like you would have in a normal war game their effect is built into your die rolls as you move forward so you don't have to resolve all Mm -hmm. that um but I don't know that, that that's, I mean, that's a, that's a sacrifice in, in, in terms of mechanics. You know? <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't recall offhand anything I had to cut from a game to accommodate the mechanics. I mean, maybe somebody could suggest something that I did that with, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, oh, that's
0: interesting. I ask because, so, you know, for Night Witches, Dave and I, David Thompson and I are doing a game. Like, um, you know, the fact is that flying endless harassment missions and not having super powerful bombs leads to a fairly boring if also extremely dangerous and adrenaline filled night so to make night which is a more enjoyable game we didn't necessarily want to send players out for eight sorties that were super repetitive over the course mm-hmm. of a mission so we had to like choose maybe slightly more powerful targeting options like you know they're maybe they're a little more powerful than they really were in real life uh, in terms of their bombing capacity, mm-hmm. or you know, we made the nights we limited the time that players were like running sorties against some of our missions specifically because if you don't and you just let people go all night, it reduces the tension of the game and makes it more repetitive and I think less interesting. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have a historical consultant like write an essay about what's real and what's not in our game, but we had to make some choices in order to bring the excitement out of a theme that is exciting because of the coolness of what the women did, but maybe wouldn't be the best game.
1: Okay, that's interesting. Um, Maybe in that sense, for example, if you're talking about Crowbar and you're talking about the preliminary bombardment by the Air Force and the Navy, instead of having you sit there and, like what you're saying, you kind of abstract it, right? To make it more entertaining. So what I do is instead of having you sit there uh, resolving combat for every ship and every plane and every bomb is I have these chits, right? These packs of chits with different effects on the uh, bottom and you decide how many, you know, they're all face down and you decide how many you're going to drop on, on the enemy to soften them up, but you really don't know what the effect's going to be. Too
0: much nothing. There's too much nothing in there, Herman. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So you don't and then you don't find out what you've done to the enemy until you actually move up there and they say, oh, look at that. I devastated that position. Thank God. Or they didn't do anything. Nothing happened. So, I mean, I guess that's what you're talking about is 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 abstracting certain historical things to and making a little more into So for me, you know, dropping chits unknowingly and saying, do I put four on here to make darn sure this guy gets it? Or take a risk and put one here. That's kind of what you're saying. It's that's the more gamey, entertaining part, rather than sitting there resolving all the actual bombardments. Okay, all right. that's cool. <laughs> I like that.
0: <laughs> um, the other comment I, you know, it's been kind of a thread throughout our interview, but I've been waiting to ask. But you mentioned often um, that marketing and commercial elements do at least partially drive the game themes that you choose. The types of games that you have said to design you know you're entering to solo gaming um to what extent would you say that your game theming choices and presentation choices are market-driven and to what extent would you say that they represent you and your passion for what you're doing
1: so i have to work for publishers publishers are businesses that have to make money and they make money by selling games so i will design games that i think the publisher can sell I won't force feed them a game on some battle nobody's ever heard of or cares about and make it a, you know, $80 game that takes 14 hours to play because nobody's going to buy it.
0: What are you talking about? There's like a um, whole, everyone would buy that. <laughs> <laughs> but would they play it, no, unbox
1: it. Uh, so <laughs> as you probably know, and I'm sure David's told you, you know, nobody, no design. Well, maybe Dave's getting rich off this. I don't know why now he's doing so well. <laughs> but look, we're not getting... We're, we're, this is not a career. This is not, you know, we're not, you know, Richard Launius or, or, or you know, what's his name? Um, I can't think of him. Um, you know, so we're not making a lot of money at this. I mean, and and this is a joyful thing. I mean, I would probably be doing this if, if I didn't get paid. So nonetheless, I still have to... I have to make games that will sell. That's why they're doing it, right? So if I make a bunch of games and they don't sell anything, the publisher's eventually going to tell me, Herman, stop making games. Unless I make them for myself and my friends or something, right? So to answer your question, I have to present them with a game that they think they will sell or that will sell reasonably. I will admit that now that I've been doing this long enough and I have a few good sellers, I can probably get away with saying, hey, I have a game about this, Koenigsgratz, let's say, um, and, you know, I'd like to design a game about that. And the publisher will say, well, okay, you know, we should sell a reasonable amount of them. You know, maybe people like your games and we'll buy them because it's your game. Th- there's a little, there's a little bit more weight there, Okay. Still, you know, it has to be a topic that that's going to sell that that people are going to want to buy, and and that's that's my obligation to the publisher. I mean, I can't ask a publisher to go broke <laughs> selling game, you know, trying to sell games that I make because, and they don't, you know, they don't provide any profit for them at all.
0: I mean, fair enough. Uh, but what are some of your okay? So now that you're a fancy designer who has some good sellers. Yeah. Uh, here's the question then. What I'm are put my
1: toe in the water on that one?
0: <laughs> what are some of your least marketable design ideas that you'd still kind of like to do?
1: <laughs> Where do you come up with these questions? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, kind of like my bucket list. Yeah. Another baseball game. Okay. Because my first baseball game is my worst selling design. It was called high and yeah high and tight. I did it for VPG. And nobody nobody knows about it, or well few people know about it, but um a baseball game, which might still happen. Um what else do I like? I, man, I'm just I would love to do a lot games on the smaller battles of the Austro Prussian, Franco-Prussian, and Italian Wars of Independence, all the and the Crimean War, all the eighteen forties, fifties, sixties, seventies battles in Europe. That were cool battles, like the Battle of Magenta, um, you know stuff like that, which which would naturally have to be smaller games because they're smaller battles. But I just find them very interesting. They probably wouldn't sell, but maybe one of these days, if I can package them properly and come up with a cool system, you know, I could do something like that. I think Ryan and I talked about that the other day. As a matter of fact, um, what else hasn't sold that well? I did a game called Dead Reckoning. Which was a two-player zombie versus humans game, which which was a cool system and warped into a couple of World War One systems. Um, that one hasn't done very well. Uh, what else? Well, no, I'll stay. I'll stay with that for now. Okay. I mean, at any cost, has only had one printing at GMT, but there may be a second printing, finally, and. That one kind of surprised me because it actually sold well and it has good ratings. I'm not exactly sure why they didn't do another printing, but whatever they do, they do. It's fine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's about it. I mean, I, you know, in the, like even so we talk about marketing. So even like the, the follow-up to Most Fearful Sacrifice, I had to pick a battle that, was interesting to do but still would be popular enough that people would be want to get it and then we're doing Rocket Chickamauga and Chickamauga, which you know is actually probably near where you live, right? It's in northeast northwestern Georgia. <clears throat> and kind of near me. It's two hours from me. But I mean again, that's an interesting enough battle and not a lot of games have been done on it. So that's marketing wise cool. And that's interest for me wise cool. And interest for Civil War enthusiasts cool. Um, so, you, it's a, so it is a balancing act. I mean, it really is. I mean, I I ask a publisher quite often, well, what are you looking for? And if they come back to me and say something that interests me, then I'll do that, right? If they say something else and I just, well, I'm not interested in doing that um, or vice versa. I could say, you know, I got this idea for a game. And if a publisher says to me, that's not our thing. That's fine. I, You know, I, I certainly don't take offense at it. That. But that's one of the reasons I work with a lot of different publishers, different... There's different publishers specializing in different client, you know, have different customer bases, specialize in different interests. So I, you know, or have different production uh, methods and policies and we can we can't do a game that big, we can do small games, that kind of thing. So I like working with different people. I mean they're all they're all great people and, and, and generally good business people too.
0: Interesting. I was actually going to ask about your range of publishers that you work with and how you decide like which games should go where. I mean, it sounds like partially it's just what are these publishers interested in. But um, you know,
1: yeah, I never force a design on anybody. You know, I and I honestly ask them, are you interested in do I don't want to do a game that a publisher is not 100% behind where I where I feel like I've you know, jammed it down their throat. I want them to fully support whatever design it is. And if they give me any kind of read that they're really not, you know, oh, we'll do it for you, you know, because you know, no, that's okay. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I, I want your, you know, I wanted this to be a mutual thing. I mean, right?
0: you just said you'd do it for me when you came on this podcast. So I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but now that's really, so that also leads to the question of how different are your relationship with different publishers? Do you, um, do you get a lot, do you prefer to do most of your own development? Do you like working with publishers who, you know, pair you with a, de- a developer? I know you've worked a lot with Ryan Howman, for example, in in recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you say that you want a publisher to fully support your game, um, <coughs> what does that mean for you in terms of interaction with and having a relationship with people at that at that publication house?
1: Right. So the first level supports moral support, like, hey, we're really excited about this right? So that gets you jazzed up. If they're jazzed up for it, then you are you get a little bit more excited about it. If they come back to you and say, well, all right, <laughs> then I'm not that excited about doing it, right? Um, but they all have their different styles. Um, so you mentioned Ryan, actually Ryan and I only met last year at WBC. So we, we've actually been working less than a year now.
0: Oh man, and- that Zorn game came out quick then.
1: Yes, it did. <laughs> it did. Um, so part of that is because Ryan and I found out that we're a simpatico, like we're like on the same wavelength back and forth. And, and that can be bad because it's just too many ideas flying around. Um, and, and Steve Jones of Blue Panther, I've known him for a long time because he used to do the, he did the printing. Um, uh, he did, he worked with Alan Emmerich a little bit and then he did the printing for White Dog Games or, you know, which I designed a few games for. And we just, he moved to Murfreesboro, which is only a couple hours away from me. And, you know, we became pretty good friends and we started working together. Um, um, flying Pig Games, Tiny Battle Games, Mark Walker. I was enamored of Mark Walker because World at War, right? Which And you want to talk about theaters, uh, um, themes that I'm not that interested in ever designing are moderns, right? Because I know nothing about modern warfare. I don't like a lot of modern warfare. But his World at War game for Lock and Load, that first version... I absolutely loved because it was chit-pull, it was random turn-end, things happen to you, it was easy to play for a modern modern game. That game was very accessible. You know, you could just play it. You know, you're talking about an era where modern games were enormous, (laughs) where you're measuring missiles going across hexes, you know, things like that. So I remember going up to him at uh, at a WBC when it was in Lancaster and crawling up there and going, "Hi, Mr. Walker. You know, I'm such a big fan of yours." And uh, s- since then, we just got together and now we're like best friends. I go up there every three months or so. We play games for a weekend. He's great to work with. We now we we talk like we're friends now. And, and but I still respect the fact that he is a publisher. Yeah. Right. So I don't try to push anything on him that he doesn't want. And vice versa, if he tells me something's a bad idea, he'll tell me. Uh, GMT. Now, it's interesting. GMT, you talk about a corporate structure and an efficiency machine. So when I I did at any cost, which was a few years ago, I was kind of on my own. It was like, hey, Herm, whenever you get the design done, give it to us. Okay. Now, they've got levels of development. Right and play testing, and I work with Ken Kuhn on um, on Plum Island Horror, and he's just a joy to work. He is so efficient. He answers Plum Island uh, Plum Island Horror questions on Board Game Geek before I get to them, which I have to tell you, and I'm sure David will tell you this too, is a joy answering answering rules questions when you have you know 25 games in the catalog is tough. I mean, I forget the answers to most of my rules or no, I won't say most of my, that sounds bad. <laughs> uh, many, of my, many of my games, and I'm sure David does too. And having either fans that will answer for you because they really like your game, so they'll answer or developers who will step in and answer is is just a godsend. Yeah. Really well, this is. is
0: why David has so many co-designers. Like I'm the one who has
1: <laughs> so um yeah I mean that's so that's a very corporate relationship it's still very friendly and Ken Ken does all that kind of thing with Mark my developer's Fred you know Fred's been a friend of mine for years and years and years and he's always my first level Fred Manzo he's always my first level of testing right and he is very good the reason we, he and I work together so much is because he plays De- devil's advocate perfectly when I bring him a design, he immediately tries to break it. <laughs> it's the first thing he does, and let me tell you, and designers will tell you this: that's what you want. You want somebody trying to break the stupid thing right away and showing, oh, well, this isn't going to work. So that, plus more professional development, is 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 uh, invaluable. It it really is. Um, Revolution games, when I did the Blind Swords games over there, same thing. You know, uh, Roger and Richard are intimately involved in every design. Uh, Roger actually played, when I brought him Stonewall Sword, which is the first Blind Swords ACW, he played that 30 times or something like that. I mean, he really made sure that he wanted to sell that before he did. And he does that with all the games, as far as I know. Um, So every, every publisher is a slightly different, you know, some are a little more professional relationships. Some are friendly. Well, they're all friendly. Yeah. I mean, you never, you never have a contested relationship with a with a publisher. You just don't work with them. That's yeah, but all. there's like
0: work friends um, and there are oh. friend friends. You know.
1: <laughs> right. Um, I've only had a problem with one publisher in my entire you know career, um, and everything else, everybody else has been fantastic.
0: You can spell it. I'm only media. <laughs> <laughs> <Well>, oh.
1: <people. laughs> People who follow me know who I know it this. is. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, we talked about kind of history and looking at sources to kind of depict games. And one thing I always like to think about, you know, because we can't. One thing that's kind of interesting about doing a lot of history is that you can see the past. But you can't always see yourself. Um, if you could choose one of your games for a future historian to have as evidence of your career. Or a game that you're going to be remembered for forever. Which one would it be?
1: Boy, oh boy, you and your questions. (laughs) (laughs) I would, I would have to say, I would have to say at any cost because that that was a labor of love for me. Uh oh.
0: Uh oh, I see you oh okay
1: (laughs) you froze there for a second (laughs) um at any cost was a labor of love for me um it was just a period i was really really interested in i wanted to do it because it was technically it wasn't the very first blind swords game but actually it kind of was it was the first one that used that system it was uh it, it was a campaign that's never been gamed before which surprised me one of the battles was a couple of the battles were but not the whole campaign the whole flow of those those four days um and for me like i said the the uh the playbook was really important to me because i wanted to teach people about what you know what this period represented what, what how it was represented you know who was involved why they were involved what happened um one of my personal proudest moments was when I was at WBC and I had uh, somebody come up to me and tell me that they thought that playbook was so good they used it in a classroom to teach the period. Nice. And to me, I was like stunned. I mean, there's nothing more complimentary you can say to a designer as far as I'm concerned that that, you know, that, that was used for that. So, um, plus Plus the GMT production I thought was fantastic. The map, just everything about that package was to me, was perfect. I just, I, you know, so I guess it would be that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, Most Fearful Sacrifice, obviously my most successful game as far as uh, awards. You know, I won the CSR, won the three CSR awards. It's my heavy biggest and heaviest game by far. <laughs> uh, so I'm really proud of that one too. And many have called it the, the best Gettysburg game. And for people to say that is... Mind-blowing, you know, it has been so many games covering that battle. So I really appreciate, you know, that. But yeah, I would say it would be those two.
0: Nice. And if people could look over the whole of your gaming career, um what would you like people to say about you as a designer in 20 years, and 50 years? Hopefully all of our games are still around then. And they're not just <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I think... Think that I would want people to say that they appreciate the diversity of my designs. That it wasn't just doing one type of design over and over again or one subject over and over again. I, you know, I took a, I take a lot of pride in that. I, you know, I can do a Plum Island horror and I can do a hardcore war game or an easier war game, um, solo games, multiplayer games. Plum Island Horror is the first multiplayer cooperative game I've done, and, and that's something I want to see as the future for wargaming, is that this idea of cooperation and playing on the same side. I like that a lot. And I, um, but yeah, I would think that the diversity of the titles, you know, that they couldn't pigeonhole me as, you know, that World War Two guy or that, you know, well, they've kind of pigeonholed me as a zombie guy, but I guess I have to live with that, you know. We'll all be
0: zombies someday, it's okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's good point, yes. I was predicting the future there, yes. <laughs> uh,
0: and then because all designers play games heavily, uh, what are some games that you've been playing recently that bring you joy?
1: Oh, my goodness, I got it right there. Tales from the Red Dragon Inn. What a, what a cool little game. Um, I just played For Glory, which is the gladi- gladiator combat. You've got card combat game. That thing's cool. Um, Oh my God. I got, so some of my favorites are, let's see,
0: Speedmaster Masters, defenders of the realm
1: Gears of war. Have you played gears? No, of war? but I
0: did acquire a copy. Oh, I did. I, I felt like I probably should make sure I got one before it was impossible. <laughs> oh my
1: God. That game is great. Why nobody's ever taken that thing and, and, and run with it a little bit and redone it or, cause it's out of print now. Um, but I will, no, I will, literally will play j- just about anything. I mean, uh, i'm not big into euro games i mean i'm not talking about euro you know war gamers tend to call non-war games all euro games (laughs) they're not i'm talking about the real uh the real euro euro games you know what i'm talking about i can't think of one off the top of my head right
0: now yeah no i know what you mean um
1: you know a billion pieces a billion cubes a billion ways to score victory points and it's trading in the Mediterranean
0: or something, of course. You know,
1: something like that.
0: <laughs> I, I do like those too. Uh, I like it all, but.
1: Oh, uh, okay. Um, you know, I like, so just to give you an example, my, probably my favorite game of all time, right? Since the, since, I haven't played this game since the nineties is Robo Rally. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just think that game is so much fun. I really do. And I try to bring it, we play it with the kids when they come to this day um so that was good. I don't know what that says about me but it says something
0: <laughs> <laughs> sounds fun to me uh and then just one more question since you mentioned playing pc games earlier do you feel that those that your digital gaming and your board gaming are very separate things or do they kind of blend for you and like cross inform each other
1: uh, for me they're kind of separate cuz i play I play this one baseball game. I've been playing this thing for 10 years and I just keep the seasons going and going. Fictional seasons. I have a team called the the Nashville Hot Chickens.
0: <laughs> I like it, actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I play this, oh my God, I play this game called Gladius, which is Warhammer 40K, um, kind of a Civ type of style. It is – I have been playing – I can't – it's embarrassing probably to see how many hours I played this thing. But it's the it's the closest thing to what I envision Warhammer 40K really being. Like, I don't play Warhammer 40K miniatures. I don't like the – I don't really like the game. But I will play their board games and I play the, the computer game. And it's – it just comes to life. So that to me is a separate realm, you know. So I try to – when I'm designing, I try to play a little bit of this. I'll do a turn or two of this. Then I'll do, you know, 20 minutes of Gladius and then I'll go back to work. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 I treat them separately. Got yeah. it. Um, also, the mystery yeah. of
0: how you got all those hours in it solves itself. <laughs> the quick
1: 20-minute break. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm retired now, so. And as you can tell by my red face, I've taken up golf. So I played 18 holes before I got on here and I got a little sunburn and everything. I'm exhausted, but I got two birdies. My first two birdies right. ever. So. <laughs> yeah, well, what else are you going to do in your retire? You know, the thing is, I, so I worked as an accountant for 40-something years. I worked two jobs for 20-something years. And my hobby is at a desk. So I work two jobs at a desk behind a computer. My hobby design work is at a desk behind a computer. And I said, and Nancy said to me, my girlfriend, she said, we have to find something else for you to do that doesn't involve a desk. So I started taking up golf and boy, oh boy, it's it's been very rewarding, but very tiring. You twist and turn and bend things you haven't twisted, turned and bended 40 something years. <laughs> it- i'm real. i'm hurting man but it's great i love it <laughs>
0: fantastic all right so i guess we should let you rest now um but yes please <laughs> <laughs> but um thank you for coming on it's been lovely to get to talk to you and i do have thank my- you for having
1: me i'm glad we could finally talk it's been
0: i enjoying. know we've connected online a few times over the years like it's always been mm-hmm. nice it's nice to actually like have a chat and uh i've yep. got Plum island horror i'll be playing it soon myself I hope you
1: like it. I, thank God it's gotten really good reviews so far. Um, and we have the, as people might or might know, we already, they've already asked me for an expansion and we're putting that out on P500 this month. And we got, we I got some good surprises. By the way, for people who are worried, it's not it's not an expansion that adds more rules or layer. It's just a more stuff expansion, okay? So you don't have to relearn the game. I, I hate stuff like that where they put so many expansions on, it becomes a different game, and it becomes just bloated, and right? I don't like that. So you'll like what's in the expansion, though. It's a, it, um, I'm glad people... I also want to say, if I can, I appreciate the fact that people like my humor, because when you inject humor into games, you're really taking a risk, because what you think might be hilarious, other people might go, just groan and go, "That is that's pathetic, you know? So, so far... <laughs> So of our people have liked the humor, and I th- thank God, <laughs> that's all I can say.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we might actually talk more about that in the future once I have played it and can
1: oh, talk sure. to you about your yeah, job, that would actually pretty fun.
0: Um, but yeah. seriously, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute delight to have you. Thank you. And uh, yeah. yeah, best of luck with retirement and all of the designs. I'm waiting. Let's go.
1: <laughs> I'm working harder now than I did when I worked for a living. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> And everybody out there, please like, subscribe, comment, ask questions, and most of all, happy gaming.